Uh, thank you very much, Christoph. Well, three introductions uh, is almost certainly one too many. One of the introducers ought to be unemployed and probably uh, <laughs> it ought to be me. But uh, I just want to say that uh, the school and I have enjoyed basking in the reflected glory from your prize. As it happens, I was going to Cyprus only a couple of weeks after it had been announced. Um, and I was you know, greeted... Uh, with enormous warmth um, everywhere. Chris, you could certainly run for president uh, in <laughs> Cyprus. Um, uh, I don't want this to go to your head, but you are even, even more popular than Stelios, which is, you know, uh, which is quite, quite something. But um, I do have uh, one thing that I should say. The, the school deserves you, uh, undoubtedly, um, but the economics department does not. Um, because Peter said uh, correctly that you'd been here for 38 years, but it should have been longer, because Chris revealed that when he decided in Cyprus to come to a university in the UK, he applied to do economics at the LSE and was turned down flat um, by the economics department selectors in their wisdom um, and went to Essex, uh, well, he tells me there's a university. So, um, <laughs> and got, got a first in economics at Essex, <clears throat> and so applied again here to do a master's, and was again turned down by <laughs> the uh, economics department. Um, it shows a degree of uh, persistence uh, bordering on foolhardiness that you applied three times, uh, and finally the economics department grudgingly um, allowed him in, uh, and we are all hugely grateful uh, for that. Chris is going to give us a version, I think, of his Nobel Prize lecture. Um, we're all looking forward to it, so I won't delay you any longer, Chris. Thank you very much for these uh, introductions. I guess, I guess the best thing to do after all these introductions is that we're all going to have a glass of wine because I don't <laughs> think I'm going to match them in whatever I say. But um, I'd like to welcome everyone. If I remember correctly, the admissions tutor of that time is sitting in this audience here. <laughs> <laughs> So he's obviously forgiven me. <laughs> um, so the, um, I was asked to give the, um, the, the, the talk that I gave in, um, in Stockholm. I don't know why I feel more nervous here than I did, than, than I did in Stockholm, actually. <laughs> uh, and, um, and the reason I feel so nervous is that I can't follow this technology here of how to change this line. <laughs> I was told you tap and it turns, but tap as I do, I can't be here. <laughs> How does it work? Ah, <laughs> I should have known by now that there's a keyboard hidden under all LSE podiums. <laughs> here we go. Um, well, this being um, an academic, or I guess a semi-academic presentation, I thought I'd show you the table of contents to begin with. and. Um, here it is. I'm going to go through the theory. I'm going to say a few things, how I got into search theory. Then I'm going to say, you know, where search, search for what? Um, you know, is it a search for a high wage? Is it a, in the labor market? Are we looking for uh, to, to get as much pay as we like? Are we looking for other things and so on? And then I'll move on to uh, some applications. But, but I'm told that um, I shouldn't extend beyond 7.30, so I might skip some of these uh, bullet points here. <laughs> okay, well, the story of how I got into um, search theory goes back to my, um, to my years as an undergraduate student at the University of Essex. And um, Essex, as some of you may know, was established by young LSE academics. Uh, it's an exciting new place that put a lot of emphasis on the social sciences. Uh, I was one of the first students, in fact, that were admitted at uh, Essex. And as part of its uh, outward-looking drive, 
Um, it has close links with Northwestern University, Northwestern University in um, just north of Chicago. And um, there were many people visiting from Northwestern who were interested in these new theories that were being discussed at the time, called search theories generally. Uh, there are people like Robert Clower and Frank Breckling, and, and Dave Mortensen, in fact, uh, visited at that time. And because of those contacts, I was given a pre-publication copy of, um, of what was then a new book with titled Microeconomic Foundations of Employment and Inflation Theory. And I was told, you know, this book is going to change macroeconomics. So I got around to reading it, and uh, Dale, I went to talk to Dale about it. He had one of the main papers in it, and, and he agreed. And I thought it was an exciting book. And uh, that's how I decided to start work in search. Whereas it happens out of, out of the something like seven or eight authors in that book, three of them have got Nobel Prizes. Um, <coughs> Now, at the same time, though, Robert Clower, who was a great monetary economist, was uh, also visiting Essex, and he had with him a, another book that had just been published. It was the book on Keynesian economics and the economics of Keynes by um, Axel Leon Hufford. You can see how carefully I read that book. I can't even pronounce the author's name <laughs> and spell it, which is even more difficult than pronouncing. And the book by Phelps claimed that uh, search theory provided the micro foundations of the Phelps Friedman natural rate of unemployment and the inflation and employment trade-off, you know, what's known as the Phillips curve. And the Leon Hufford book claimed that uh, search theory could provide microeconomic foundations for Keynes' concept of effective demand in, in Keynesian economics in general. Now, it's rare that a student searching for a PhD topic comes across um, such claims. You know, he's given two books, and one claims to explain half of the macroeconomics, and the other, that search theory could explain the other half. So I, there was no nothing else I could have done <laughs> at that time. Um, now, the Phelps volume, as the book became known, had many great papers in it, but my main interest was in the first part of the book, with papers by Alkian and Charles Holt, describing in detail the process by which individuals look and find jobs when there is imperfect information. And then papers by Phelps and Mortensen putting everything together into a theory of the, unemployment, of the inflation and unemployment trade-off. And my idea was to work harder on the microeconomic foundations of their papers and introduce price and wage stickiness to get the Keynesian dynamics that were discussed by Leo Hufford. And the outcome was that was my first book, which was based on my PhD thesis at the uh, London School of Economics, called Labor Market Adjustment. Um, Keynesian economics at that time was still the um, main approach to macroeconomics, but it lacked theoretical foundation, and that's what I was trying uh, to do it. Now, as I was thinking of um, with the PhD, I want to take you back a little bit before, before the book, and, and I was talking to Dale Mortensen, and he offered me to go to Northwestern to do the PhD, and, and I also had an offer from Harvard to go and, and do it. But um, I decided to leave Essex and um, come to the LSE instead. And um, thinking why, of course, the LSE had, uh, had, had um, many attractions, but the, the main things that attracted me there was that I looked at the weather in uh, Chicago and Boston, <laughs> and I thought there's no way that I can put up with this. And then I also looked at the airline shuttles, how long it, it takes to fly from Chicago to Cyprus. And it was far too long. <laughs> so I decided the LSE beats them both on both grounds. And, and I thought recently I'd go back and look at the LSE website to see if these two have mentioned the disadvantages of coming to the LSE, and neither of them is there. So I think that's something we can do to attract more students here. But I came to the LSE in 1971, I think it was. And of course, of course graduate students at that time uh, at the LSE, they were not um, being looked after at all well, not like we do now. Uh, you were essentially admitted. You were told... Um, there is no money to finance any of your studies, and even if there is, you are not going to hear about it until December of, the, of your first academic year, so you'd better find some money to pay for your PhD. And, and, and you, are, you are told to find a topic, and you were told to find a topic and, uh, and write a thesis. So, so the way I did it all was that I spent a good, good two years of my life locked up in um, with the old library across the corridor there in some dusty old room. I managed to find a little room called Room Q, which had a single table in the middle and legal books around. And um, the, um, 
it, oh, I, I looked at those books and they were all um, they were all references for lawyers, but one of the rare sites at that time, I don't know if that's still the case in the LSE, it was a lawyer in the library. I've never seen one. <laughs> I have never seen it. So I made that room on my own, and that's where I wrote my thesis, basically. And, um, and then when I came as a lecturer at the LSE two years later, I, I still found it an intimidating place where you are left alone to write your papers and send them on to journals. But of course, all this changed when uh, Richard Laird um, approached me and about his ideas about setting up a, a center for labor economics. This was sometime in the late 70s, and, um, and to work on applied labor problems. Now, I did uh, join what was known as the labor group, group and write uh, applied problems. And if there are any, any doubts, I can show you the layer group. There it is. <laughs> just in case you get us mixed up on the guy at the other end, lower <laughs> first row. But, uh, oh, the guy has the cross there, sorry, it's not, you're not meant to be short. <laughs> 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 Let's move it away. <laughs> but of course the most distinguished line here, other than the academics, is the back row of <laughs> this where you probably recognize the Greek um, finance minister of the last <laughs> 10 years at one end, and a very distinguished member of the LSE community on the other, I think, you see, sitting there. The guy in the middle is also a Greek politician, the one next to uh, <coughs> the line. But this, this was in 1981, and, um, and although I did do some uh, applied work within the Center for Labor Economics uh, at the CLE, maybe Richard didn't know that at the time, but I was mainly using it as a diversionary tactic just to get into the group. My true passion really was the theory of search and employment, which I carried on quietly in the background. And search was, search, search and employment was a bit of a dirty word actually those days, because unemployment jumped from 5% to 15%, and obviously that wasn't because uh, people couldn't find a job. So it wasn't because people didn't want to accept the job, it was because um, there were no jobs. Um, so, um, but but I still thought that um, there was something to say about that, that there was some sort of future to the idea, if you like, of, of modeling uh, um, unemployment that way. So what was it that sort of attracted me to it? You know, why did I stick with the idea of search unemployment when unemployment was rising so fast in the Thatcher era and, and, and uh, when there were so many factors like macro policy that were important to it. And to me, what, what, what was appealing about search theory as a foundation of the theory of unemployment was that it, that it, was, a, it was realistic, you know, basically. It was a good description of reality. The official definition of unemployment is um, one of workers looking for a job and they're available to take one. And from introspection, we know that if we are without a job, we'll look for one and sooner or later we'll find one. And, and the Phelps-Mortensen view in the Phelps volume um, was one of, of rejecting poor wage offers. Uh, but I didn't think that was a good uh, foundation. I, I didn't think sort of rejecting poor wage offers and that's why you are unemployed. Was, I, I didn't think it was a good, good approach to unemployment. The view that I took back then was that job search in the official definitions in our intuition is not about looking for a good wage, but it's about looking for a good job match. Each worker has many distinct features which make them suitable for different kinds of jobs and job requirements also vary across firms and employers are not indifferent about the type of worker that they hire at any wage. Employers essentially post a wage and then are looking for the most suitable worker amongst the applicants. And um, the process of matching workers to jobs takes time irrespective of the wage that is offered by the job. Um, I felt that the view that the worker is confronted with a wage distribution and she either takes or leaves wage offers is not the best way to think about job search. And the process whereby both workers and firms search for each other and jointly they either accept or reject the match seemed to me to be much closer to reality. And combined with this, I was rather dissatisfied with the view of unemployment that the, the big debates of unemployment at the time was whether unemployment was voluntary, i.e. there was unemployment because workers didn't want the jobs, or 
or the Keynesian view that was involuntary, where there was unemployment because there were no jobs to take. And um, it seemed to me that sort of two-sided matching had a better chance of success because it could be grounded into microeconomic theory. And there were elements from both the Keynesian involuntary unemployment and the sort of new classical, if you like, voluntary unemployment that they were interacting in giving you an equilibrium outcome of unemployment rather than one that employers really want the workers but they don't want to come to them and workers really want the jobs but the jobs um, are not coming to them. Now having, um, having sort of seen through that and, and thinking that we have to write models where there is essentially mutual agreement between the uh, workers and the employers about forming a job, uh, then the next thing was to write down a formal mathematical model. And um, how, how do you do that? Well, in fact, it turned out to be reasonably uh, easy to do it because of the, um, because in the case where, uh, where the search by both workers and employees is for a good match, we can bring in the aggregate matching function as it's, it's a description of the choices that are available to the worker. Whereas in the other case of a wage distribution, we couldn't use something like the aggregate matching function. Now, the matching function captures many features of frictions in labor markets that are not made explicit. It's a black box, as um, Barbara Petrongolo and uh, I called in our survey, in the same sense that the production function is a black bo box of technology. But it captures the key idea of a good match. It takes time to find a good job. The length of time it takes varies across workers in unpredictable ways. And if there were more job vacancies available, on average workers would find a good, a good match uh, faster. And the same applies to firms looking for workers because the matching function treats uh, firms and workers symmetrically. Now importantly, because economists are skillful in writing economic models with aggregate functions, summarizing complex relationships, it became easy to write models of labor markets with frictions captured by the matching function. It also became possible to estimate these models with real-world data. And in 1986, in a paper that um, Charlie Bean has encouraged me to write, in fact, and, and publish in Economic Policy, I estimated the key relationships with British data uh, with rather encouraging results. I think looking back, it was probably my most underpublished paper, by the way, Charlie. Um, now, the, um, now, I first used the matching function a little bit before then, explicitly in a paper in 1979, making it the main building block of an economy-wide model at about the same time that Peter Diamond and Eric Masking used the similar idea of the search technology. The model of my paper had no wage differentials, but it had different methods of search. My main interest was to show that with a matching function, one could get an interesting simple model of equilibrium vacancies and unemployment without a wage distribution. But my 1979 paper, though, still suffered from the fact that it had no theory of wages. But soon after, it seemed that all three of us, meaning Morten Sundam and myself, independently realized that since frictions in the labor market imply that the firm and the worker <coughs> in a good match enjoy some monopoly power, wages need to share it between them. And it helped that in the early 1980s, <coughs> independent developments in bargaining theory were working out solutions for the splitting of a cake. And some of the pioneers in that research area, people like Ken B. Moore, Avna Shaked, and John Sutton, were working at the London School of Economics. We had many conversations about <coughs> the ideas of Ariel Rubinstein and others in uh, bargaining theory. And the idea was that the rewards from a good match in the labor market is the cake that uh, uh, bargaining uh, theories were, uh, were dividing amongst the participating uh, agents that, that, that they were splitting. So I attempted the derivation of a wage equation in a search model using ideas from bargaining theory, essentially ideas that I picked up in the senior common room, and the outcomes were some working papers that appeared around 1982, uh, before the electronic era, of course. And information travel, traveled rather slowly back then, and I was unaware that Peter Diamond was working on similar issues and was one or two years ahead of me. 
I got to hear it when my friend Yanis Ioannidis went to a seminar that Peter was giving at MIT and he sent me Peter's working paper. Now Dale was also working on similar models, applying bargaining solutions to search and seeing their papers on wages and efficiency made me switch to another issue that needed to be dealt with in an equilibrium model, which is that of job creation. And the wage equation that I was deriving from the Nash solution to the wage bargaining had been derived and elaborated by them before my paper came out. In fact, I don't know how many know it, know it, but I save every single piece of paper that ever comes my way. And believe it or not, I found a referee report for, for that paper that I submitted then, and it says, I'm sorry, but we're rejecting your paper. One referee liked it, but the other referee who knew the other unpublished literature thought we should turn it down. <laughs> and then, uh, well, this, uh, well, the journal was rather good one, actually, it was Econometrica, but it said, a paper in Econometrica at this, age, at this stage would have to take full account of the Diamond and Mortensen work. Bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is uh, rather nice. Well, the paper, in fact, was submitted to another journal, and the, um, the referee was Mortenson, and um, luckily he recommended acceptance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I now, having, you know, one thing, as you probably gathered from Howard's introduction, one thing that I don't do is give up <laughs> when, <laughs> when I'm getting rejected, so... <laughs> One rejection upon another. So if you really want me to uh, do something, just say no to me a few times at first, and then I'll do it. <laughs> um, so one rejection after uh, another didn't put me off, because I kept sending the papers to other journals, and that's why our main papers are um, dated rather differently the, in, in citations. But then what, what I decided to do then was to switch to the other issue that was needed to close the equilibrium model, and um, that was the model of job creation. Now, in Peter Diamond's and, and in Mortensen's paper that were finally published in 1982, I see the referee report that my paper was rejected was dated May 1982, so their papers were coming out as mine was still being reviewed. Um, and um, the, the problems they were investigating assumed that there was a fixed number of workers interacting with a fixed number of jobs. Well, that was also in, in, in the other work that the other two had with them. And, and yet, when looking at the workings of real labor markets over time, the most striking feature that one sees is how employment and job vacancies fluctuate. In other words, how the total number of jobs varies over time, depending on economic conditions. Well, you couldn't get that from their work. Uh, you could get nice theories of wages, but they didn't seem to have any impact on employment. Um, and I thought in order to derive a theory of job creation, um, I could make use of the idea that, that in our models, employment is derived as the sum of distinct units called jobs and not as an aggregate that can be chosen as a single unit. That's a very, that was a very important departure, in fact, of our approach to, a, a, to a employment theory. Employment theory up to that point, it was really a theory of an aggregate. You, you could see there was this mass of that we call employment and then look at how the macroeconomy uh, brings about equilibrium and then in that equilibrium there's a big number that is the employment rate. And you can't really tell if it was employment of hours, people, or whatever. It was just a mass that came out of the equilibrium model. Whereas in our models, employment is made up of these distinct units that are called jobs and are occupied by only one person. There's an indivisible unit that is occupying. So I thought, I thought, let's think of a job as an asset that is owned by the firm. It's an asset that in a, in a perfect market, it should have, it could have a, a, a value in the stock market. You know, you could trade sort of stocks on, on jobs. And when the job is vacant, it has some value because it can expect to recruit a worker and yield some profit in the future. If it's filled, it's producing for profit. Vacant jobs are like nascent investment projects that have not started yielding a return yet. If their net value is positive, the firm can create them for profit. It can just issue pieces of paper that it can sell as equity for vacant jobs. If the value of a vacant job is negative, then it's losing money from them. The firm is losing money from them, so it makes no sense uh, to keep them and it closes them down. It follows, therefore, that in equilibrium, the number of jobs could be derived from the condition that the value of a new job vacancy in the market must be zero. 
Now, I first used the zero profit condition to close the model in my 1984 and 1985 papers, and it has since become the standard job creation condition in the equilibrium search literature. Combined with the Nash wage equation, it gives an equilibrium wage rate and job creation rate that depend on the frictions summarizing the matching function and on all the other variables that influence labor market outcomes in standard models, such as productivity and taxes. And from this condition, I can get the equilibrium number of vacancies in the market for each unemployed worker, which is called tightness and usually denoted by the Greek letter theta. I'm not going to take you through the derivation, but just to show you, like, like so many other things in economics, you can illustrate the equilibrium by two lines. One goes up and the other comes down. <laughs> but they're not supply and demand lines. <laughs> okay, let's now move on to um, the famous beverage curve. Now, you, some of you may be familiar with the beverage curve, which is the relationship between job vacancies and unemployment, which was first described by William Beveridge, working at the London School of Economics in the 1940s. I wonder if he was in room Q, too. <laughs> was, I bet he had some office somewhere back there. Um, now, one of the original motivations that I had to get into a search theory was to explain an empirical phenomenon about it. Sorry, to, to, one of the, yeah, to, to, to explain an empirical phenomenon about the beverage curve. I mean, that was much discussed in Britain when I was a graduate student. And that phenomenon was known as the shifting UV curve. Now, UV curve was the name given to the beverage curve at the time. Um, apparently, the name beverage curve was given by, um, by an American, but no one is sure what it was. In Britain, it was always known as the UV curve. Um, and starting sometime in the late 1960s, the British uh, UV curve shifted out away from the origin. And this implied that the labor market had become less good at matching workers to vacant jobs. Um, I show the beverage curve in this figure that you see. It's the line that um, is sort of convex to the origin. I didn't say much about it because in the Stockholm presentations, the, the other two came before me. They always seem to come before me, whatever I do. <laughs> and they both had detailed explanations of the beverage curve. So I, I, I sort of just put the curve there. But, but what it really shows you is the combination of job vacancies and unemployment that uh, an economy has. and. Um, and uh, the idea behind it is that if you have more vacancies, you're moving up the curve and, and unemployment is falling simply because there are many more jobs for, um, uh, work for the unemployed workers to, to take. Now, and, and what was going on then is that, is that in, in, an ideal world, in an ideal world, you want the economy to be as close to zero as possible, to have zero unemployment. So if the labor market is functioning efficiently, then it should push the beverage curve very close to the origin, have very low unemployment. But if it's not, then it, it will move out. And what was characterizing the British labor market in the late 60s and early 70s when I was a graduate student was that the curve kept, kept moving out in small steps. Um, now, to find the equilibrium unemployment, however, on this curve, we need to know at what point on the curve the economy will settle. But that's easy because we have from the previous diagram an equilibrium value of the ratio of vacancies to unemployment. And we can find that, that point immediately. We draw a line through the origin with slope the equilibrium theta. And the intersection of the beverage curve with this line is the overall equilibrium of the economy. Now, at the core of this economy are the frictions that characterize the labor market. These frictions are the forces that keep the beverage curve away from the origin, as I just explained. And the frictions could be due to a number of factors, such as mismatch between skill requirements of jobs and the skilled mix of the unemployed, differences in location, the institutional structure of an economy with regard to the transmission of information about jobs and many other factors. Now, in an economy where workers do not have strong incentives to accept an offer quickly, for example, because they are generously compensated uh, without preconditions by the unemployment insurance system, the beverage curve will lie further away from the origin as well. And an income support policy that does not impose preconditions is called a passive policy. So in an economy which supports the unemployed in a passive way, they just go along to the employment and just collect their, uh, their um, compensation, their benefit. And it, do it doesn't give them incentives to look to, for vacancies and take them quickly. It will push the curve out. Uh, 
Um, but policies that support the unemployed during surge and also provide incentives for, for more intensive job surge can shift the beverage curve towards the origin and improve the performance of the labor market in matching workers to jobs. And in this case, we say that the policies are active. And the leader in the implementation of active labor market policies is Sweden, which spends far more than other advanced countries on bringing unemployed workers to jobs. And in contrast, up to the 1980s, most countries supported the unemployed through passive policies with poor outcomes in the recession of the 1980s. Most countries have switched from passive to active policies in the course of the 1990s, following the poor performance of their labor markets in the 1980s. Let me now use this framework to um, do, to go, oops, oh, there was supposed to be another slide, never mind. No, actually, I'm sorry, I was moving in the wrong direction. Uh, let, let me do an application now. I can use that framework to compare economies over space and time and say something about uh, their um, condition. And um, what I'm doing is let, let me compare two economies, one with more frictions in passive policies, i.e. not good policies for unemployment, with one with fewer frictions in active policies. In the first economy, the one with um, more frictions, uh, the beverage curve is further away from the origin, as I've just argued. It, it also has fewer job vacancies for each unemployed worker because firms expect to take longer to find a vacancy. And the figure that you see it looks a little bit complicated, but, um, but it's not really. Um, it compares these two economies. The economy with more friction is shown with the broken line because, they, because it has a beverage curve that is further out and it has a job creation line that is down, it's creating fewer jobs. And an important conclusion is that the economy with more frictions has more unemployment than the economy with fewer frictions, but the two economies may have a similar level of vacancies, which you see the red arrow that shows that unemployment would be higher in the economy with more frictions, but their vacancy rates are about the same. Now this conclusion can be contrasted with the comparison of two economies at different levels of aggregate economic activity, demand or supply, a lower level of aggregate activity implies lower profitability for new jobs. Job creation falls, and this rotates the job creation line clockwise, but the beverage curve does not move. Equilibrium unemployment increases, and vacancies fall in response to this shock. And you can see it again with the less emphasized red letters. Now, the different response of vacancies to more frictions and lower level of aggregate activity, it was used by a number of authors to identify the reasons for the rise of unemployment in different countries. At the Center for Labor Economics, Richard Layer, Richard Jackman, and I first used it in a paper in 1989 to argue that the rise in unemployment in Britain in the 1980s after the initial big surge associated with Prime Minister Thatcher's restrictive monetary and fiscal policies took place at more or less constant vacancies. You can see what's been happening. I mean, look at the points where the economy, an economy that starts not functioning very well, will move you horizontally on the V line to give you, and, and with giving you more unemployment at going vacancies. Whereas an economy that is, that is in recession but is functioning well will slide down the curve. And you can see that clearly what was happening in Britain at that time, which was the essence of our paper with, um, with the two Richards. And here it is. This, this is the British economy between 75 and 84. And you can see that it's a textbook case where it's moving horizontally up, which shows that the underlying reasons for the rise in unemployment in Britain at that time have been uh, are related to increased frictions in the labor market. And this could be associated with increased mismatch as the transformation of the economy from an industrial to a service one intensified uh, and manufacturing was being destroyed at the time, and to more generous income support uh, for the unemployed. It was also very likely due to the build-up of long-term unemployment, which disillusions the unemployed and damages the incentives they have to look for, for work. Long-term unemployment, meaning unemployment that lasts for a year or more, is a serious consequence of recession that disenfranchises workers from the labor force and prolongs the impact that recession has on the quality of the workforce. It can explain why the unemployment rate was not falling in the 1980s when the rest of the economy was booming. Governments realized the negative impact of long-term unemployment since then, and they have tried to contain it with active labor market policies. 
For this reason, more recent recessions do not exhibit the big shifts in the beverage curve and the long persistence of the negative shocks in the labor market that you see in this uh, diagram here. Now, we can see this contrast between what we saw in the last big recession in the early 80s. Um, we can see the contrast in Britain when we compare the economy's response that you see on the, on the screen with the, with the economy's response in the recession of 2008. And, and this is what the diagram looks for the 2008 recession. As you can see now, this, this here is a typical textbook picture of an economy that is functioning well in the labor market, but it's been hit by a big recessionary shock. It, uh, it, it used to operate at 5% unemployment in 2008 and 2.7% vacancy rate. That was about normal. And then suddenly, within a year, it came down to 8% unemployment and, whoops. <laughs> I still get excited when I talk about unemployment theory. <laughs> and 1.7% and vacancy rate. And, and, the, and all those points that you see down there is, uh, are, is really an indication that what's happening in the labor market is that, is that it's waiting for some positive news to start moving up again. And that's why I thought, uh, maybe I shouldn't get into this, but I'll say it anyway, that's why I thought um, the coalition government's rather um, cut in uh, public spending was a bit, a bit premature. There's no evidence here that uh, there are risks yet. Um, now, the British experience uh, contrasts sharply with the experience of the United States. Cathy uh, Abraham and Larry Katz used unemployment and vacancy data for the United States to argue that the business cycles of the 1970s and 1980s were due to aggregate shocks and not sectoral shocks as argued by David Lillian and others. Now, sectoral shocks could have similar implications to mismatch shocks, but the economy in the late 1970s and the early 1980s in the United States was behaving, again, like a, an, an efficient labor market that was hit by a negative shock, and here it is. This is the United States in um, 75 to 85, and you can contrast that with uh, Britain at that time. In fact, in fact, the United States, 75-84, looks very much like Britain in the current recession. But in the, in the 2008 recession, however, the United States economy started off on a downward southeastern direction. But after the initial shock, it traced an increase in unemployment at more or less constant vacancies. And you can see this here. It's still too soon to conclude that this is a shift of the beverage curve to the right, what that means is that the points you see up there is too soon to say if, if, if it's a shift to the right, but it's certainly evidence that there is something going wrong in the, uh, in the American labor market. An economy that, um, where the vacancy rate goes up from 1.9 to 2.5 does create more jobs, where there's clear evidence here of a jobless, re what the Americans call a jobless recovery. And, um, there is still a lot of disagreement among the American economists as to why the economy is um, showing those features, why it's moving in the upward direction, is not bending down and move back up. That we have to wait for more data to see that it was like that. I hear that last week the, one more point was published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but it doesn't give any new information. It's still, it's still up there. Unemployment is not falling yet. Um, let me say, let me talk about one uh, other ap application, although there are many here. And this is the question of wage stickiness, which is, uh, which is very dear to the heart of macroeconomists. Um, now, the response of unemployment to shocks is bigger when wages are sticky, when they don't respond uh, it, it, to any macroeconomic shocks. And the question is, do markets with frictions have anything new to say about wage stickiness? And I'm talking here about real wage stickiness, although similar arguments should apply to nominal wage stickiness. Now, in frictionless markets, like neoclassical markets, there are no compelling reasons for wage stickiness. In contrast, in markets with frictions and Nash wage bargains, there is a built-in reason for some wage stickiness. 
It is that the wage rate depends on the worker's non-market returns, which is what the worker can offer as an alternative when he or she is bargaining with the employer. And those include unemployment insurance income, the value of home activities like uh, home decorations or childcare, and the value of extra leisure like more sleep. The payoffs from these activities are not cyclical in the business cycle sense. When the market payoffs go down, for example, because of recession, the home payoffs remain high, and this stops the Nash wage rate short of falling by as much as the, mar as much as the market payoffs. I explored this wage stickiness story in my 1985 paper in the American Economic Review to derive cyclical fluctuations in unemployment in the model with frictions. But as Robert Scheimer has shown recently in 2005, it is not the wage stickiness I had then is, is not enough to explain all the amplification of the shocks required to match the data that we see. Subsequent work has shown that it can be enough but only if the firm's profit share from the match is very small, either because workers take most of the share or because firms have large labor hiring costs. But markets with frictions can justify another form of wage stickiness, much more substantial than the one implied by the Nash wage equation. This was first explored by Robert Hall, also in 2005, who argued that since the monopoly power implied by frictions implies that there are no uh, conventional supply and demand functions to tie down the wage rate, the Nash wage is only one possible outcome consistent with equilibrium. In other words, if you have a competitive model, you have a supply and demand curve, and the problem that economists have is how to get away from the intersection of that supply and demand curve. When you have frictions of the kind we explore, though, there is a bilateral monopoly. There is some monopoly surplus that the firm and the worker have to share. Now, the assumption that the Nash wage is used to share that surplus implies that the sharing moves along with the business cycle, with the economy. But as Robert Hall has shown, it's equally reasonable to assume that the wage rate is fixed at the median historical wage, and it moves only when, um, the, when the bargain is threatened to break down unless the wage moves. And in that case, you get what he calls an equilibrium wage stickiness that explains all the amplification of the shocks that you get in the economy. And this analysis reopens the issue of wage determination and it puts it into central stage as a topic of future research. Now I'm going to skip the other topics that explain how I got together with uh, Dale Mortensen in 1990 to work on our joint papers that followed what I've just uh, described and instead skip the final slide in case, well in case no, I do see graduate students watching this is where you should be doing next. <laughs> and uh, okay, so search and match. The, so final page. Don't worry, I'm finishing. <laughs> search and match theory has come a long way since the, since the three of us, with others who either collaborated with us or worked independently, formulated the first models some 30 years ago. There is a book by Brian and John McCall that surveys the economics of search. It's 550 pages long. And I understand that was a second volume plan for the things that uh, were left out. But there's still a lot of work to do, despite those two, two great volumes. We've discovered, just as Sir John Hicks did in 1932, at the London School of Economics, as it happens, in fact, that the theory of wages is key to understanding the functioning of labor markets. Sir John described in detail how frictions in labor markets, mobility costs, and trade unions, and other institutions influence wages and how wages influence employment very much along the lines that modern theory describes. But modern theory has still to explore more fully the role of institutions in formal models. And this is an area of research that should attract a lot of attention in the future. I've also argued that wage stickiness is as important an issue as it's ever been in macroeconomics and market with frictions open up many more possibilities for wage stickiness and future research again needs to explore these, especially in the context of modern uh, bargaining theory. Now the recent financial crisis has also thrown open doors that we thought were firmly closed not so long ago. Our models were built on the assumptions of rational expectations, that is, no systematic mistakes in perfect capital markets. And these are good starting assumptions, but they have, and they have yielded important results. But future work needs to explore other assumptions about expectations and knowledge, introducing perfect capital markets and integrate the financial sector with the labor market. 
something that hasn't been done yet. This might one day explain how shocks get amplified to the extent that we see in the data. So although progress has been rapid since the early 1980s, when our models were first formulated, I feel that there is still a lot of work to do, and there are many important results that are still waiting to be derived. Thank you. Like every good academic paper, it ends with a plea for more research, um, which was entirely appropriate. Um, who would like to? We have a quarter of an hour or so for questions. Who would like to kick off? Um, if, if, um, if I might have uh, <coughs> the right to the first question. Um, you talked about the current US labor market, and I think many people have been a bit puzzled as to why US unemployment sort of accelerated up to 10%, you know, plus or minus, and has stayed there. Um, you, you said you thought there was something going on in the US labor market that wasn't quite right. What, what's your hypothesis? I mean, recognizing that your data points showed a rather confusing picture, but what, what kind of hypothesis do you have as to why it's behaved the way it has? Well, the most, most likely, I think, explanations is probably one or two or, or both working together. Um, one is that it, it, this recession has affected different sectors of the economy very differently. And workers need to move from the uh, declining sectors, especially um, construction, to uh, expanding sectors, which I, I guess would be in, in services, including medical services, uh, services and all that. And, and, and it's not easy to turn a construction worker into a nurse. Probably easier than concerning an investment banker into a nurse. Yeah, I wouldn't trust that. Yeah, I would trust the construction worker more <laughs> to look after my mother, for example, than, than a banker. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that the, the sectoral dimension might have something to do. But but also I I think now I haven't looked at that very carefully. But the because there were the two Americans who had the place we went in. And, and I left the American <laughs> things to them, but um, but I, I think the unemployment insurance system actually the, under Obama has become a lot more lax and um, more generous. So uh, I'm told, and, and of course that could also explain the, uh, the slowness with which workers get back into work, especially the duration of the unemployment the compensation has increased. I think in the United States, mm. correct? Yeah. Those, those two could do it, I think. Who else would like to? Uh... Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, right up there. Can you, uh, get a, if you give your name, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, Bernard Casey from Warwick University. Um, could you, following up that, because you haven't mentioned housing markets, you talked about capital markets, but in the context of the United States, um, but also in the context of the UK, could you talk about the contribution of housing markets to stickiness? Well, the, the, the contribution of housing markets to, um, to, 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 to unemployment, you mean? The, I mean, it's true that economies that have bigger mobility have lower unemployment. And in fact, that's another factor in the United States that, that I don't know why, but um, Regional mobility in the United States used to be much higher than in Europe, but it, but now it's just a little bit higher. It's fallen a lot, and and the housing market is one of the main influences on on mobility. It was very bad here in, the, for example, in the 80s, uh, when um, many of the unemployed lived in council properties, and that if they moved from one region to another, they lost their access to a council house, so they didn't move. They just sat back and waited until jobs came up in their uh, area than move. Um, the, um, the, and, and there is a very good correlation between house ownership and unemployment. In the countries that have higher ownership of uh, houses are, are also characterized by higher equilibrium unemployment, presumably because the mobility goes down. There, is, there isn't very much work 
linking the two, although these facts are, are there. But at the same time, it, 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 doesn't pose, it doesn't pose many interesting challenges for the theorists. You see, it's not like, like bringing up together the capital market and the labor market. It's, it's a theoretical challenge because we don't really know how to do it. Whereas in the case of housing markets, bring it in as a cost of mobility and, and, and the result comes out in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. um, but I guess countries that have higher uh, rental, you, know, you don't have an attachment to the rental market as much as you, you have to your own home and that's where you're more likely to, uh, to move. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, do you think on, on this, uh, you talk about the sectoral issue in the United States of people moving sector. How would you expect that to play out in the UK? I mean, it looks as if, given the fiscal squeeze, there's going to be job shedding in large parts of the public sector. Are these workers who will be picked up elsewhere, or will there be a matching problem there of people um, with you know, skills unsuited to the growth areas of the economy? No, I think, no, no, I, I think if, the, if there is job creation, um, in fact, the natural uh, job creation that will have taken place, I, I think they'll be absorbed quickly because the sectors that are creating the jobs are sectors that could absorb public sector workers fairly easily. Um, you know, it's, the, I mean, the sectors have been creating jobs the last um, 20 years, maybe, in the, in the United Kingdom. Of course, there are service jobs, but even if you look within the service sector as to where they've been created, uh, they're mainly health and social care jobs. And um, that's about that's, that's that's about it about it really domestic it, it's anything and, and personal services you know any, sort of all, almost all job creation is in education in health and anything that has to do with uh, uh, personal services with looking after people you know sort of gyms for example have proliferated and people working in gym you know personal trainers well I think it's a lot easier to turn a public sector worker into a personal trainer than. Uh, even a banker, I would think. Than a construction worker. Could, uh, become personal trainers, that probably. Yeah. That would probably work. Yes, they yes they have nice exercises. <laughs> I used to do them as a student. Who else, who else would like to come in? Yeah, uh, right up at the top there. Can you watch it? Hi, uh, James Mason from Rubini Global Economics. Um, you've talked about applications to the UK and the US. I was wondering if you could, uh, or if you've, you've thought and looked at the Eurozone periphery and the current crisis and the structural reforms that are in the labour market particularly might be required to help sort that out. And I'd love to see the charts if, if you have European ones. Thank you. Uh, no, I, 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 I haven't got them here. I, I, I looked at the you know, Eurozone periphery. I'm, I'm too tactful to look uh, east in the Eurozone periphery. <laughs> so I look west, Spain. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, what, what's happening in Spain actually is we, 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 learn, we learn a big lesson from what's uh, been happening in Spain because Spain has had a very stringent employment protection legislation, one, one of the highest in, uh, in Europe. And um, and when they realized that in the 1990s and, and they tried to reform it, it was very difficult to reform it because of the um, pressure from trade unions and all that. So they thought one way out is, is to create a second tier of jobs, which are called the temporary jobs, and they are fixed term contracts up to four years. And, um, and if, a, if a company hires a worker in a short term contract, then at the end of the four years, then it either has to um, uh, make the contract permanent, or it has to fire the worker and hire someone else in, in his place. Now, that, that worked for as long as the economy was growing, because uh, companies created lots and lots of these uh, temporary jobs, and it absorbed the unemployed. So unemployment went down to the levels of other European countries. But as soon as recession came, especially as soon as uh, uncertainties about the future of recession came, all these workers were fired instead of um, being renewed, and, and, and unemployment shot up uh, immediately to 20%. So the lesson we learned from there is that, is that if you cannot reform the regular contracts and make them more flexible, it's actually better not to do anything about them at all. Because you are making the uh, volatility of unemployment, you are making the, the, the fluctuations much worse when negative shocks hit the economy. 
uh, we see the little bit in France as well, but in France the temporary contracts are, are not that temporary. They, they, there are some uh, rights that workers have. Um, so the so so the lesson that we learn from um, from that is that uh, you know to, to try try harder to reform the regular employment contracts in any market rather than. Uh, Thing where here is an easy solution. Let the, uh, the unionized sector work in, in the way it used to, and introduce some non-unionized contra uh, contracts, and let uh, them work. Uh, Richard Layard, next, just uh, down here. I think he wants to apologise for not admitting you in 1959. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't him. It wasn't him. <laughs> He's too young to have been admitted. <laughs> I, I can make a comment, a historical comment, though. Another paper that was written in Room Q was the famous Phelps paper on the natural rate of unemployment, which got his name. Oh, yes, paper. yes, that was, yeah, the, yeah, yes, yeah. that was written. <laughs> your, your last line uh, is what uh, provoked me. Um, I mean, when you try and integrate the financial market into the labor market, the impact of the financial market on the labor market, presumably that goes in through the job creation process. Yes. So if you're looking at the current activities of the British financial sector, how does that affect your view of the prospects for British unemployment? Well, it, it, the, the current activities, I mean, they have many activities. Presumably, you mean not, not lending not, not to lending, firm, yes. Not lending. Well, you, you, you see that, act, in fact, um, I, I have to, to my shame, I have to admit, I looked at American data, which is a similar feature than British data here, and, and you do see it. In fact, I think it's one of the explanations that I didn't mention of, um, of the, the reason that um, job creation in America is not, um, is not picking up as the economy is recovering is that, is that firms are accumulating a lot of liquidity internally because they fear that, uh, they, that their um, lines, they to, that they won't be able to borrow from the firm, from uh, banks because banks are not lending very easily. So when the economy recovers, if the economy recovers, <laughs> there'll be, um, th th there is a risk of that, that, uh, that firms will start we want to accumulate a lot more liquidity than they used to before, before they start creating jobs, because they cannot get the, the loans from the firms. I think currently, liquidity, from, what, from what I'm told, liquidity in the American corporate sector is one of the highest it's ever been. You know, the sort of velocity of circulation of money is way down. They're just holding, uh, holding back than, uh, than lending it out. Uh, yes, Dan uh, Fontray here in the middle. Professor Perdigues, my name is Ingrid. I'm a graduate of the LSC and a current investment banker and aspiring personal trainer. <laughs> but uh, I am. Um, you want to be a nurse? <laughs> you alluded to um, the cuts that you mentioned were premature in the current coalition government. I understand this is a relatively controversial topic, but I was wondering if you could touch briefly on, firstly, where you see these cuts to be premature in the first place, and secondly, what the short and long-term effects are um, on the British labor market. Well, well the, the reason I thought they're premature is that, is that if you look at any, um, any current uh, data for the uh, UK, there's just no, there are no risks from uh, having a, a higher budget deficit than the current one. There was no risk in continuing with the same budget deficit that we had before. You know, the sovereign risk is uh, is zero if you look at interest rates and compare the spread with Germany. In fact, I think, I don't know if it's still the case, but the British interest rates at, at one point they were even lower than German interest rates, which means that there's no, there's no sovereign risk. There's no threat from that. It, it, inflation is. <clears throat> is not really due to the uh, fiscal deficit. I mean, it's not clear what it's, it's due to, but if you read the letters of uh, the governor of the Bank of England, he never mentioned the fiscal deficit is causing them. You saw there that the economy is not really recovering with any strength. I mean, there's no job creation. So it makes you wonder why, you know, why go into the trouble of cutting the deficit now? So, you know, wait and see what's happening. You know, the, the United States has um, has a bigger deficit. Uh, no, and another thing is that debt is not very big in in Britain either. The, the national debt. The 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 United States has an even bigger deficit, and and people like um, 
you know, Krugman Stiglitz and Peter Damon as well in uh, in Stockholm were shouting, you know, there, there is no sovereign risk and we should continue spending and we should increase the budget deficit to create more jobs. So, you know, if the Americans can do it and rely on uh, foreign buying of, of American securities, why not us here? Yeah. Now, now, what are the implications? The, the um, I, I mean, the, the, the long-term implications. I, I don't think there will be long-term implications, to tell you the truth. I mean, the, you know, there might be medium-term implications about how long it takes for the economy to get out of recession, that it might slow down the uh, part coming out of recession. But, but, but in the long run, you know, these things don't matter. Monetary factors don't matter in the long run as well. Um, in the short run, though, I mean, there is a risk that the economy will go back into recession. Although since then, it's, it's more like sort of that you, the, the risk is more that it will stay flat for a longer period of time rather than dipping, but still not turning up. And uh, and in the medium term, that um, it will take it longer to get out of recession altogether. You don't think long rates are where they are, partly because of the government's announced fiscal policy, and of course the previous government no, as well announced something fairly tough. Yeah, oh, oh, well, what, what I think there actually is that, is that there was need to announce uh, the, the cuts. Yes. I guess we signed a letter with some people that are sitting behind, where I said it's important that there should be a clear plan how to reduce the deficit, but not how to reduce so much now, you know, it's so, so premature is the... Um, operate work rather than don't do it, you know, wait a little bit longer. No, I mean, I, I, I do believe in, um, in financial markets being able to pick up information quickly, actually, and process it. So if the government had a, a clear announcement of how it was going to reduce the deficit before the end of the current parliament, but not start immediately now, then uh, it will have had the same impact on, on interest rates, I think. Yeah. Okay. We've got time for one more if there is one. Yeah, there. My name is Christoph. I'm a student at the LSE. Um, I would be curious about your opinion on the German government's um, subsidies to, government, to pri private companies to keep um, workers employed during the crisis. Um, what are potential benefits and risks uh, maybe in Germany and other countries? Well, it, it, it surprised many people, including myself. If you asked me before, you know, what would be the impact of this um, subsidies to essentially share, share jobs, I would have said they're not going to be very effective, but they've been extremely effective. And, um, and I have to say, I, we, we don't know why. There is uh, it's going to be a session at the Brookings Institution on that very, very question in the near future, which I was invited to go to, but unfortunately I cannot, so I'm not going to find out until, <laughs> until after. What, what's... Um, What's happening there is that, you know, for the benefit of those who might be less familiar, is that, is that the, the, the German government is, is subsidizing short time effectively for, for, from its workers. And usually when that happens, it, they, they, companies try and increase the productivity of those remaining and working short time without necessarily um, increasing employment or keeping it constant. Whereas it, in Germany, the, the effect of this subsidization has been that the number of people employed has not been affected at all. In fact, it even went up uh, slightly there. But the number of hours of work has come down, uh, has come down a lot, and productivity has come down a lot. So it, it, it looks good, I have to say, frankly, uh, mainly from the sort of social point of view. It, it looks like a very good policy, and maybe from uh, now on, people will be recommending it more. But but we did have studies in the past that talked about job sharing that always came up with negative results, both for, from the theory and, and the empirics. In fact, yes, I'm responsible for very negative writing on job sharing <laughs> sitting three rows in front of you. <laughs> and, 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 and I was one of those too. So, uh, so my response is that it's a, a very pleasant surprise and we have to follow the research that is being done now and see why it's being done and, um, and, and hopefully learn something more about active uh, policy. Chris, thank you very much. I'm going to do one more uh, important thing now. Uh, my beautiful assistant um, is... Uh, oh, it's you, sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, first of all, there's a gift from the Economics Department, which is a kind of compilation of all of the post-it notes and photographs and whatever. I don't think it's from Room Q. I think it's from uh, the day you won the, the prize. Uh, so uh, I think you wouldn't screw it around. And then there's a, a picture of the... Uh, uh, of the university uh, to which you owe so much, um, of Essex. Sorry, <laughs> of, the, uh, <laughs> of the LSE. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.